0: On June 1st, 1973, Charles Colson visited a friend, Tom Phillips, while the Watergate scandal exploded in the presses, and he was baffled and shocked that Tom Phillips explained he had just accepted Jesus Christ. But he saw that Tom was at peace with himself and with God, And when he left the house, he couldn't put the key in his ignition because he was crying so hard. He writes, I was confronted with my own sin, not just water gates, dirty tricks, but the sin deep within me, the hidden evil that lives in every human heart. It was painful, and I could not escape. I cried out to God and found myself driven irresistibly into his waiting arms. That was the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began the greatest adventure of my life. That story has been told hundreds of times in the past ten years. He's a very famous person now. But too many of us settle for that experience. Colson didn't. Not only was the White House hatchet man willing to cry in 1983, he was also willing to repent several years later of a woefully inadequate view of God. It was during a period of unusual spiritual dryness, he says, and if you're in one this morning, take heart because... As you read the biographies of the saints, it is astonishing how many times God meets saints in singular ways in the midst of the desert. Do not despair. He is not far off. A friend suggested to Colson in this time that he watch the video cassette lecture series on the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And here's what Colson writes. All I knew about Spruill was that he was a theologian, so I wasn't enthusiastic. After all, I reasoned, theology was for people who had time to study, locked in ivory towers, far from the battlefield of human need. However, at my friend's urging, I finally agreed to watch Spruill's series. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees, Deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness. It was a life changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought was ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made my thirst greater for more of him. In 1973, Colson had seen enough of God and enough of himself to know he was desperate to be saved, forgiven. And so he said, irresistibly, he was drawn into the arms of God and was converted to Christ. But several years later, something else wonderful happened to Charles Colson. A theologian spoke on the holiness of God and Charles Colson says he fell on his knees and gained a completely new understanding of the Holy God. And from that point on, he had what he calls a taste for the majesty of God. Have you got a taste for the majesty of God that you cannot slake Every day you feel, I don't have enough of you, God. If not, I hope that taste is kindled in your heart this morning. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. Now, Job was a believer. Job was a holy man. Job was a prayerful man. He got up early to pray for his children every day. Surely Job knows God. Surely Job's vision of God is adequate. Surely he can be satisfied he has arrived. And then the desert comes, and Job in misery meets God. And God says, Will you put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder like the voice of Him? Deck yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Then, Job, then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can get you the victory. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And Job saw God and responded like this, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now... My eyes have seen thee, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Can that happen at Bethlehem? It can, and it is. If I didn't see signs of it, I would be very hard put to press on. Even though I know, as I said last night to many of you, that pressing on in perseverance and plodding in the face of obstacles is the key to revival. A.J. Gordon, in his book, The Holy Spirit and Mission, says, It was seven years before Carey baptized his first convert in India. It was seven years before Judson won his first disciple in Burma. Morrison toiled seven years before the first Chinaman was brought to Christ. Moffat declares that he had waited seven years to see the first evident moving of the Holy Spirit upon the Bekuanas of Africa. Henry Richards wrought seven years in the Congo before the first convert was gained among the Banza Mateka. But it's still hard, isn't it, to keep on? And so I'm grateful to God for raindrops that are falling and letters I get in the mail. For example, a member wrote me a week and a half ago now to say that Isaiah's and Job's and Charles Coulson's experience is happening. He wrote of the ministry of the church, It has taken me soaring far past what I formerly perceived as mountaintops to a grander, greater, bigger, more glorious picture of God on high than I ever imagined. My view of God becomes larger and larger and larger. And out of His omnipotent magnificence flows everything, all sufficiency. In the ten months I have been at Bethlehem, there has been a wonderful revival in my heart. And the flame burns brighter and more surely than it ever has. Revival happens when people see God, majestic in His holiness. Brokenness, repentance, unspeakable joy in forgiveness, a taste for the magnificence of God, a hunger for His holiness to see more of it and live more of it, that's revival and that's what happens when people see God. And I want you to see God in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and I invite you to turn to Isaiah 6 with me Isaiah saw God and he was never the same the term Holy One of Israel occurs only in Isaiah 29 times except for two other places one in the Psalms and one in Hosea which are clearly dependent on Isaiah why did he call him the Holy One why was his vision of God stamped irrevocably by his holiness. Here's why. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Seven glimpses I see of our God, and I want you to see them briefly with me. First, our God is alive. Look. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw God. From everlasting to everlasting, God is alive. He was alive when this universe banged into existence. He was alive when Socrates drank his poison. He was alive when William Bradford governed Plymouth Colony. He was alive in 1966 when Altizer pronounced him dead, and Time Magazine put it on the front page. And he will be alive 10 trillion ages from today. But Uzziah was dead. And every head of state on this globe today will be gone in 50 years there is a 100% turnover in world leadership and in a brief 110 years there will be 10 billion brand new people on this globe and every one of us will have vanished all 4 billion of us but not God God is alive from everlasting to everlasting number two God is authoritative. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. No vision of heaven has ever seen God plowing a field, or shining shoes, or cutting His grass, or filing reports, or loading a truck. Heaven is not a place that's coming apart at the seams, being held together frantically by a busy God. He is sitting on a throne and all is under control. He is never nervous. He never says, oops. The throne of God is His right to rule. We do not give God authority in our lives. God has authority in your life whether you like it or not. He made you and has as much rights over you as the potatoes and meat you made for yourself for this noon meal. We need to hear strong words about the authority of God. Sometimes offensive words like those of Virginia Stem Owens when she wrote in last month, Reform Journal. Let's get this straight, she says. God can do anything He damn well pleases, including damn well. And if it pleases Him to damn, then it is done ipso facto well. God's activity is what is. There isn't anything else. Without it, there would be no being, including human beings, presuming to judge the Creator of everything that is. Amen, Virginia. Few things are more humbling. Few things give more of a sense of raw majesty of God than to think of His absolute authority over our lives as His creatures. He is the Supreme Court. He is the legislature. He wrote the law. He is the chief executive. After God, no appeal. Number three, God is omnipotent. His throne, which signifies His authority, is not one among many thrones. Notice, it is high. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up over all other thrones, and therefore no other power or authority in the world can frustrate the designs and the decrees of the authority of God. My counsel shall stand, says the Lord. I will accomplish all my purpose. He does according to His will, says Daniel, in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand. To be gripped by the omnipotence of God is either stunningly, joyful because we know He's for us or terrified because we think He's against us. Fourth, God is resplendent. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and His train filled the temple. You've seen pictures of brides at their wedding, standing on the platform and their train spread out by the photographer all around them, down the steps? What would it signify to you if you saw God with His robe spread out, filling the balcony, the choir loft, all the way around, covering every pew in a temple as big as the universe? Our God is resplendent. That's what it means. He is full of splendor. His being is so full of life and splendor that it is lavish in what it displays. You can see it in a thousand ways in the world if you have eyes to see. For example, Ranger Rick, the January issue. You get Ranger Rick? You ought to get Ranger Rick. In the January issue of Ranger Rick, there's an article about species of fish who have lights, their own lights. There's one that has a lamp that hangs from his chin and dangles like a lantern. There's one that has a beacon that comes off of his nose, shining, attracting fish into his mouth. And there's one that has little flaps here that open and close on luminescent lights so that he can hide himself and then shine and go his merry way. And they all live at the bottom of the ocean where no man can appreciate them. Only God. Why? Why didn't he just make a few dozen streamlined simple models to get the job done? Because he is lavish in splendor. What a God. So full in himself that he's going to spread his flowers on mountain slopes where no eye will ever see but his. And his fish to the bottom of the Pacific and there are thousands of species those National Geographic and Ranger Rick people will never see. Fifth God is revered. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. No one knows what these strange creatures are. These six-winged creatures who have intelligence, who can fly, They never appear again in all the Bible. Seraphim is used only here. But surely, given the grandeur of the scene, we would be dead wrong to picture chubby little babies fluttering around the ears of God with wings. The reason I know that is because verse 4 says, when one of them spoke the foundation of the heavenly temple shook. And that's no chubby baby talking. Better to have the image of the blue angels. You remember those jets? One of them crashed, I think, not too long ago. But I remember as a kid at an airport watching those planes in formation perform. And I can remember seeing them up, I don't know, must have been a mile, in formation, coming straight down. (laughs) Jets. And then, right before they got to the ground, cutting it right along the runway about 20 feet above and breaking the sound barrier right in front of us, knocking us for a loop. And I picture the seraphim breaking the sound barrier of the universe in front of the throne of God again and again and again with the words, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. Then maybe we have an inkling of what Isaiah saw. Sixth, God is holy. One called to another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. You remember Reepicheep, the gallant mouse? If you don't know who Reepicheep is, you should read Lewis, C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. Reepicheep is a gallant mouse. Do you remember how at the end of the voyage of the dawn treader he sailed in his little coracle to the end of the world and never returned? The word holy is the little boat in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. The possibilities of language to describe God come to an end. They spill over into a vast void of silence. Holiness carries us to the brink and from there on all our experience of God is wordless. The reason I say this is because every time you try to define the word holiness you simply wind up by saying this God is holy means God is God. Let me illustrate. The basic root meaning of this word holy is to cut or separate and therefore among things on earth When they're holy, it means they are cut off or separated from what is common, or we would say secular. So the Bible speaks of holy ground and holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths, holy garments, holy nations, holy city, holy scriptures, holy promises, holy men, holy women, holy faith, holy kiss. Anything, almost, can be made holy by being separated off from the ordinary and devoted to God. But what happens when you try to apply that definition to God himself? From what can you separate God to make him holy? His very Godness means that he is utterly distinct and utterly separate from all that is not God. There is an infinite qualitative difference between the creator and his creature. God is one of a kind, sui generis, in a class by himself. And in that sense, he is utterly holy, separate. But what have you said but that he is God and not man? Or, if the holiness of man is not just being cut off from the secular, but devoted to God, to whom will God devote himself that he might be holy? Only himself. It is blasphemy, wouldn't you agree, to elevate any reality above God and say to God, now that you must conform to in order to behold holy." I would worship that, not God. God has nothing to give an account to. When he was asked his name, he said, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. That's God. That's my name. That's my essence. I simply am. I was determined by nobody. My character is utterly absolute. It is not contingent. It had no beginning. It will have no end. It depends on nothing you ever do. I am God. God is absolute. Everything else is derivative. And in that sense, He's holy. But what is holy? Listen to these three texts. There is... None holy like the Lord. There is none besides thee. To whom will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. I am God, not man, the Holy One in your midst. In the end, God is holy in that God is God and not man. He is incomparable. His holiness is His utterly unique, perfect divine essence his holiness is his deity it determines all that he is and is determined by nothing his holiness is what he is as God call it majesty, call it divinity call it greatness, call it value eventually you realize that your words have come to the world's end and from here on in It's either reality in my heart or game. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. But before the silence, one more thing. After the shaking of the foundation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is glorious. The glory of God, very simply, is the manifestation of his holiness. God's holiness is his incomparable perfection in himself. His glory is the display of that holiness for his creatures and the members of the Trinity to behold. God is glorious means... God has gone public with His holiness. His glory is the open revelation of His secret holiness. Listen to Leviticus 10.3. I will show myself holy among those who are near, and before all the people I will be glorified. When God displays holiness, what we see is glory, because His glory is the visible manifestation of his holiness and his holiness is the invisible essence of his glory. Holiness is concealed glory. Glory is revealed holiness. And When the seraphim say the the whole earth is full of his glory, that's because they in heaven can see the end of the world of where they are like high mountain see the end of the trail they can see the whole earth full of his glory but down here from our perspective too low we sometimes wonder this earth does not seem full of his glory at all and there is coming a day when it will be but we don't have to wait and with this I want to close there's a parable Soren Kierkegaard told it suppose that you are wanting to see the glory of God and you get in your carriage a hundred years ago to ride out into the night sky and on either side of the seat of the carriage there are gas lanterns burning brightly at your head and you ride out there and stop and you look up and there's nothing there it's black and you say hmm not very much glory out here tonight and then along comes the wind of the Holy Spirit and blows out those lanterns those man made kitchig lanterns and then you look up and you say The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament declares His handiwork. This is Prayer Week. You know what Prayer Week is for? Blowing out lanterns. We need to go hard after the Holy God because we are surrounded by worldly lanterns. Our sins, our habits, and all the declarations of the world are are aimed by Satan to make us look up and say, Ho, hum. And you know what it feels like to look up and say, Ho, hum. And it's because there are too many lanterns burning in your ears. Join us, please, to go hard after the Holy God this week. Someday God is going to blow away every competing glory And His holiness is going to be known in its awesome splendor all over the world to every humble creature. But there is no need to wait. Job, Isaiah, Charles Coulson, and many of you have humbled yourself to go hard after the Holy God and have developed a taste for the majesty of God. To you and to the rest of you who maybe just this morning are beginning to... And it's a long way off. You say, what is he talking about? But you taste it just enough to want more. To you too, I issue this invitation from the Lord, who is alive, authoritative, omnipotent, resplendent, revered, holy, and glorious. Hear the word of the Lord. You will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me... And you will find me when you go hard after me with all your heart.